Welcome back. It's part three of our annual London Walks Halloween podcast. It's Adam here, and I'm staying up late to watch horror movies. It is believed that the last wolf in the British Isles was killed in 1680. According to records dating to 1834, the hunter was Sir Ewan Cameron, and the place was Killycrankie in Perthshire. Such a creature as the wolf, however, was never going to go gentle into that good night. <coughs> Anecdotal reports of wolf sightings in Scotland stretch into the 18th century and beyond. None can be confirmed. The Wolves and Humans Foundation, a charity that works for the welfare of wolves and the protection of their environment, suggests quite reasonably that such sightings may well have been rogue dogs rather than fugitive wolves. County Deerstalking, on the other hand, the online Deerstalkers magazine, is keeping a more open mind. Their particular angle on the topic is the reintroduction of wolves to Scotland as a means of controlling the red deer population. On the topic of the precise date of wolf extinction in Scotland, they state, with such vast areas of wilderness, it is difficult to be certain. A dramatic allusion. They go on to add, records claim sightings as late as 1769, and still others indicate that the wolf may have been, in fact, at large in Scotland until as late as 1888. That year. The year of the Jack the Ripper case. Would it be irresponsible of me to throw the wolf among the pigeons here and beg the question, was Jack the Ripper a werewolf? Am I on to something here? Or am I on something? Is this a major breakthrough? Have I solved the Whitechapel murders? Well, even the most cursory tap at Google reveals what, for me, was a piece of ghoulish whimsy turns out to already be a clammy and breathless conspiracy theory in its own right. I don't know why I was even slightly surprised. As I typed in the question, was Jack the Ripper a werewolf, I was tickled to see that the predictive text function went to the question, was Jack the Ripper Welsh? I've resisted the temptation to go back and follow that one up. We do, however, find a welcome in the hillsides in the business at hand. The last sighting of a wolf in Wales was in... 1941, in George Wagner's Universal Studios classic horror movie, The Wolfman. In The Wolfman, Larry Talbot, as played by Lon Chaney Jr., 
returns to Talbot Castle in Wales, his ancestral seat, to take up the mantle of heir to the family fortune upon the death of his elder brother. My personal interest in the movie was twofold. I'm very fond of the old Universal Studio horrors and monster movies of the 30s and 40s, and this was the only one I had yet to see. My fascination is doubled by my own mother, who, at the age of 86, still goes pale at the very mention of Cheney's name. In 1941, when she was 11 years old and visiting her older cousins in Glasgow, she was taken to the pictures to see The Wolfman. I, I thought it must have been a wilderness picture or something like that, she always says, but I ended up having screaming nightmares for months. It's debatable whether you will have screaming nightmares after watching The Wolfman in the 21st century. It's an old horror movie and, as such, at times, requires a near Olympian suspension of disbelief. Indeed, from a 21st century standpoint, there's much to snigger at. Larry seems to have been away from Wales for quite some time and has picked up quite a deep and wide, oh shucks, kind of a drawl, very similar to that found in Lon Chaney's native Oklahoma. His father, played by Claude Rains, sounds about as Welsh as Boris Johnson. Indeed, this strange Welsh hamlet in which the movie is set, from the Yank love interest in the jewellery shop to the Stetson-wearing gravedigger, everyone seems to hail from several thousand miles across the sea from Small's Lighthouse in westernmost Pembrokeshire. The period, too, is confused, with big, boat-like American cars sharing single-track roads with carts straight out of the haywain. So far, so Hollywood. Daft anachronisms such as these abound. Even in the Hollywood product of today, it's all part of the fun. It's only a movie. Special effects? Well, not so much. Our protagonist becomes a werewolf when attacked by one in the woods. So far, so dramatic. The attack, however, takes place behind a discreetly placed tree, presumably to appease the censor. As for a transformation scene, we see Cheney's feet grow into paws and then we crossfade to the actor prowling the misty woods in a sudden change of clothes, with his face wondrous hairy. But no set-piece transformation scene. And this must be the only werewolf movie to lack one. In its place, we get a montage to illustrate Talbot's inner torpor. A still photo of Cheney looking grim fills the screen as fragmented images from the story so far flash around him. As a special effect, it's not particularly special. But where the visuals leave off, the music takes over. As the orchestra spirals out of control, we see the horror from Talbot's point of view. He is trapped by the monster within. Right from the off, the score drives the movie. Where earlier universal horror, Dracula, had been introduced by a snatch of classical music but had otherwise remained soundtrackless and rather theatrical, the score in The Wolfman is one of the stars of the show. It opens with an augmented fourth, or tritone. The tritone is described by the Oxford companion to music, 
10th edition, printed in 1970, as the interval of the augmented fourth, which is the product of a succession of three full tones. In the major scale, it occurs between the fourth and the seventh notes. It is relatively difficult to frame in singing, and in itself is not a beautiful interval, and hence, in early ecclesiastical music, 4th to 16th century, its melodic use was forbidden. It sounds like this. Not, as the OCM puts it, a beautiful interval, useless in the musical praising of God. So, if not God, what is it good for? Well, the other thing. It's known as the Devil's Interval, the Devil's Chord. And it was Hans J. Salter's first port of call when scoring The Wolfman. Score aside, is the movie scary? I asked my daughter, who's nine, if she thought so. No, she replied, but you do feel sorry for him. And in this, it's a great horror movie. It doesn't make us fear the bogeyman. It makes us fear becoming the bogeyman. Fear of the monster can be easily brushed off. Take a quick look under the bed. There is nothing there, and you knew it before you looked. Fear of the movie monster is fun, transient. It passes as the credits start to roll. Fear of being the monster, of never being able to go home again, will outlast even the longest run of sequels. I'd like to consider the screenwriter here too, Kurt Siodmak. His own story adds a true chill and depth to the overall picture. Born in Dresden in 1902 to a Jewish family, he left his native Germany in the 1930s after hearing an anti-Semitic rant from Nazi propaganda chief Joseph Goebbels. The spectacle of otherwise respectable citizens morphing into monsters is, for most of us, thankfully, merely the grand guignol of the movies. For Siodmak and countless others, it was all too real. Both Siodmak and composer Salter left Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Both men lived to the age of 98, a far better record than most of the protagonists in Universal's horror and monster movies. And both men enjoyed long and successful careers in Hollywood. Siodmak's script, with Salter's music, provide perfect support for Lon Cheney Jr.'s central performance. Cheney is a likeable big lummox trapped in hell with his condition. In the story at hand, he actively seeks death, begs for it. To look at his big open face on a screen with the sound turned down, you'd expect the soundtrack to be Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. Turn it up to ten, however. It's a different story. A truly horrified central performance. A great script. And a monumental score. 
No wonder my mother still has nightmares. In terms of cinema, the source of the vampire legend is the 1922 silent classic Nosferatu, starring Max Schreck. This German expressionist take on the legend is essentially the third run at Dracula on screen, but the first that survives. Earlier Soviet and then Hungarian versions are now lost. The source for Nosferatu was, of course, Bram Stoker's 1897 novel, Dracula. It is at this point, however, at which our narrative runs into its first problem. A garland of garlic in the shape of a writ from Stoker's estate. The movie makers had neglected to gain permission to use the characters and plot from the Stoker book, and part of the court settlement was that every print of the movie be destroyed. We all know it takes more than that to destroy a vampire. A number of prints survived, and in 1994 a compilation print was released, compiled from the best available fragments, and is still widely available to watch today. It's the movie that rose from the grave. First things first, is it scary? Can a movie from almost 100 years ago retain the power to affect a 21st century imagination? A 21st century imagination mind that has served everything on a plate, everything from cacophonous surround sound explosions and relentless musical scores to blood and guts down the multiplex, has surely rendered the modern imagination something of a lazy couch potato. So, can a 1922 film still be scary? Yes, yes, it, it, can, can. I'm very aware of the temptation to aggrandise the original in an attempt to appear all knowledgeable and coolly elitist. And that's not what I'm aiming for here. Besides, the business of being the best is a matter of pure opinion and mine remains that Christopher Lee's 1957 outing is far and away the best. I'll be coming back to Christopher Lee and indeed Bela Lugosi on another day. But I am here to praise Caesar in the person of Nosferatu, not bury him with a stake through his heart. Scary. Perhaps not the right word. Affecting without question. The poor quality of the print, flickering like a magic lantern at its focal point and bleeding out into abysmal darkness at the periphery of the frame, only serves to enhance the experience. As the movie goes on, you find yourself looking for shapes in the shadows, shapes that you know are not there. 
but it doesn't stop you looking for them or seeing them. It's the perfect cinematic encapsulation of William Hughes Mann's famous 1899 poem. Yesterday, upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. I wish, I wish he'd go away. Not only does the magic lantern effect create haunting, invisible characters, it pulls us in, like our ancestors drawing close to the fire to attend tales tall and true that will murder peaceful sleep for weeks to come. Unlike the campfire of yore, however, the scant illumination from the screen here fails to function as respite, as a harbour for our fears, as the great Christian metaphor of light for goodness. Far from it, for it is by this light that we see a tragedy unfold. In this tragedy, even the victims are creepy. The makeup, although face paint would be a better way to describe it, creates a grotesque Greek mask effect, perfectly mirroring the Jonathan character's hubris in his youthful enthusiasm for a lucrative assignment to the Carpathians. We know from the off that no good will come of this. It's a one-man festival of acting from Gustav von Wangenheim that makes your average opera singer look like Robert De Niro. Even the Mina character, played by Greta Schroeder, the heroine of the piece, is painted in such a way as to resemble some broken doll. It's difficult to use the word melodramatic today without it sounding like a criticism, but her performance is perfectly that. Melos is from the Greek word for music. And her performance is a plaintive song indeed. And that's before we've even clapped eyes on Max Shrek. Her Shrek is no smoothie in an opera cape and brill cream. He will be the reason why you either love or hate this movie. If you want the middle European nobleman, skip forward ten years to Bela Lugosi. If you want your man Bill Compton, the dashing American Civil War vampire from the excellent Suki Stackhouse novels of Charmaine Harris, and later the gloriously lurid HBO series True Blood, then you've come to the wrong place. Shrek's vampire is a Carpathian country mile from the troubling idea of the glamour of evil. No trouble here. He's just evil. Inhuman, grotesque, devil-like, his creeping gait casts spider shadows that rupture the precious little light we have. His hairless skull, lumpy and pallid with its irregular, savage-looking teeth protruding rat-like even in repose. His spindly fingers claw at the imagination long after the movie has ended. He is not sophisticated, not at all complex. He's an amalgam, a personification of age-old fears, rats, spiders, the dark, plague, the devil, mortality, and the dank chill of the inevitable grave. Suffice to say, there are no chuckles with this movie vampire. For many, Shrek as Count Orlok remains 
the most terrifying of all movie vampires. It's difficult to disagree. podcast was compiled, produced and presented by Andy Hallett and Adam Scott Goulding. For details of the full programme of London Walks, London's best guided walking tours, go to www.walks.com. The London Walks podcast was an APB production.